to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We began Matthew's gospel in March of 2020 before the world went mad. And uh, it has been such a wonderful blessing for me, and I hope it's been an amazing blessing for you to continually hear the, the glories of Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ as the world has done its ups and downs over these last three years. And today we conclude our three-year study in Matthew's gospel as we look at his parting words to the disciples in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him, them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So a few decades ago, in an effort to be relevant and catchy, to catch the eyes of our culture, almost every single local church in North America borrowed the practice of crafting and adopting snazzy, snappy mission statements. This practice was taken out of or borrowed from the corporate world. And while that might work in the business arena as they seek to define and the aim and the scope of their organization, as they seek to set boundaries and parameters within which their companies will operate. For example, if you're Apple Computers, you're not going to be setting up vegetable stands on the side of the road to sell vegetables. You're going to focus in on whatever it is that your parameters tell you to focus in on. And I think theirs is personal computing. In my estimation, however, the church had no need, nor did they have any warrant to follow the secular world in this exercise because, because there is no way to improve upon the words of Jesus Christ's mission to the church in any way, any shape, or any form. And so, as I perused websites this week, these are the types of mission statements that dominate and populate churches all across North America. For example... Here's three I came across. The first is, this church exists... I took the names of the churches out. This church exists to be a place where love works. Does anyone have any idea what that means? Next one is, this church exists to be a global and highly trusted model of relevant and innovative evangelism. I do not know what they mean by relevant and innovative because when I look at the scriptures, what I see is Jesus Christ going and proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins everywhere he is. 
When I read the book of Acts, I see the apostles standing on street corners, preaching to whoever, whomever they can. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I read the letters of Paul when he says things like, God has chosen in his wise plan to use the foolishness of preaching a crucified and risen Savior as his plan of salvation. It's his plan of saving his people. See, the church is called to declare and to herald the message of repentance. Repentance from sin and faith in Christ, who was crucified, who was buried, who was raised up on the third day. I don't know how relevant and innovative gets stuck in here. And one more. This church exists to create a radically inclusive, just, and loving community mobilized to alleviate suffering and break the cycles of poverty and marginalization. You notice what's missing from the, that mission statement? Jesus! Jesus and the call to make disciples or to preach the gospel or to turn to God in any way, shape, or form. And these types of mission statements are, are, are all over. And in all three of these so-called mission statements, there is no mention of actually making disciples. Now compare these sad human efforts to describe the mission and the purpose of the church with the wonderful, blessed words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who on the mountain with his disciples that day told them, and by extension us, that we exist to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Can you improve upon those words? No. And this is clear in every gospel. In John, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. In Luke, it's recorded, Jesus said to his disciples, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. This is the commission. This is the call of the church. These are the marching orders that have been given to us, Christ's people, from that day to this and from this day to the end of the age. This is our duty both as corporate gathered believers assembled to worship our God and as individuals living in this world as we go out into it. And we do this by proclaiming the gospel in both word and deed. And this is important. Know this, nobody can justify a lack of actually declaring the gospel to another person using words, using our mouths to speak the words of Jesus Christ. You and I must actually herald the gospel in this world. And this is difficult, right? The mockery that comes as we preach the gospel, keeps us from actually wanting to declare the gospel with our mouths. The humiliation that might come to us as we preach the gospel and get told, ah, oh, you Bible thumpers! The risk that comes from preaching the gospel, the risk of your employment, the risk of your friendships, the risk of your families, all of those are real. 
The risk that comes with obeying Christ's call to go into the world and make disciples is a real risk that all of us must face, endure, and walk into confidently. It is the desire to avoid this risk that has led to such weak and powerless ministries that people seem to flock to and help out because it makes them feel better. What good, for example, is a soup kitchen that feeds the body but then does not feed the soul with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What good is a soup kitchen that doesn't preach the gospel? You know what? It's easy, right? It's easy to go and ladle some soup into a bowl and give it to somebody and feel good about yourself because I ladled a hundred bowls of soup today for somebody and they sat at the table and they ate. I can measure that. There's a tangible measurement to that. But to believe that by ladling soup without actually preaching the gospel, we can fulfill the Great Commission is foolishness. If we don't tell those we feed about their greater problem, the need for forgiveness, their alienation from God as a result of the sin in their life, and the way that they can be saved by repenting of their sin and turning to Jesus, we've effectively done nothing of value. Now, it is an excellent thing to go into the world and to dig wells and to build schools and to feed the poor. They are all virtuous and all upstanding acts, but they are all empty if they are not followed up by the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing to go and hand out gospel literature to people, to hand out chick tracts or whatever it is you hand out. That's great. But it is not a substitute for you speaking the gospel to the people into whose hands you put them. It is not a substitute for you telling or professing or actually being a witness yourself. Telling them, again, with our own mouths of the good news that you can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is an offer to you. It is an offer made to all sinners. And on top of the evangelistic effort, we are also called to baptize all believers in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, and to disciple each other into greater maturity of faith, exhorting and encouraging and teaching each other to observe, hear what the text says, all that Christ has commanded. This is your mission, Winona Gospel Church. This is our mar- these are our marching orders as we wait and as we watch with alertness for the end of the age. This commission is the reason that God established Winona Gospel Church here for this time. This building is for us a location in which to gather in which to be discipled into greater maturity and into greater obedience to the Lord, and then to be sent out to go into the world to make disciples for Jesus. Listen, God has organized creation in such a way that his plans are moved forward by the obedience of his church to his commission. To go and make disciples. So there are, therefore, no more important words for us as a church to understand if we are to do church and live church and be the church correctly in our culture than these words 
given to the disciples by Jesus on this day. To know our calling in the world. Because God has in his wisdom designed it this way. God is going to use you. Yes, you. To spread and advance the gospel in this world. Isn't that amazing? He's going to use you. So as we conclude our walk through Matthew's gospel this morning, we're going to examine this commission of our Lord in order to more fully grasp our mission as a church. And it begins in verse 16. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. All right, so here we got Jesus designating the meeting place between himself and his disciples after he has raised from the dead. And quite intentionally, you see, right, he chooses a mountain. We don't know which mountain it is. We can't be sure which one it is. But when God, throughout the scriptures, when God chooses to meet with his people on a mountain, it is usually for the purpose of relaying to them, giving to them, or setting down for them some really important information or some really important command. Examples include... God's revelation of the law to Moses took place where? Mount Sinai. When Jesus went to preach the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind, he did so from a mountain, and that's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 17, we see Jesus leading Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. And on that high mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them there. And they were given a glimpse, just a glimpse into the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, after his resurrection, Christ directs his 11 disciples to a mountain once again to relay to them this most important commission to prove to them that he is indeed risen from the dead. And he will give them information they need to know. He will tell them and he will tell us what it is that we are to be busy about day to day as we live in this world, as we wait for the end of the age. And the first important bit of information shown to them on the mountain is this. Jesus is risen. He is risen from the dead. As the disciples arrive on the mountain, you see in verse 17, they waited for him to show up, and verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, this verse can seem a little bit confusing, right? Because it seems to describe a group of disciples who see Jesus, and they're like, amen, and they fall down and they begin to worship, but then on the other side, there's some who are like, "Mm, I don't know, man. That's not what's happening here, because the word that is used for doubt here actually means to hesitate. See, as they're on the mountain, Jesus is approaching them. You see it in verse 18, right? Jesus came and said to them. So they're on the mountain, and Jesus is approaching. And there are a few of the disciples standing on that mountain, seeing Jesus from a distance. They immediately recognize him, and they fall down in worship, while the others hesitated, meaning they wondered to themselves, could that really be him? Is that him on the way? So they delayed any act of worship until they could be certain of the identity of the man that had been approaching them as they waited for him on the mountain. But as Jesus came near, verse 18, he spoke to them, and I have no doubt that when the hesitant disciples saw Jesus clearly and up close and they understood that he had indeed risen from the dead, they fell down and they worshipped alongside their buddies. 
And Jesus spoke to them. And what did Jesus say to them? He, so, he told them three things in our text this morning. He told them first, or he declared to them first, his all-encompassing authority. Second, he commissioned them, his disciples, to make more disciples. And third, he promised to be with his disciples to the very end of the age. So that's the three things that we're going to look at in our text this morning. Let's explore each of them in order, beginning with Christ's declaration of his all-encompassing authority in verse 18. Look at it. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the authority described here is ruling power, meaning Jesus possesses complete and total authority in heaven and on earth. To him, supreme, unchallengeable, sovereign dominion has been granted, committed, and delivered over by his Father. The authority delivered over to the Son of Man is the Lord Jesus Christ, had been spoken of and prophesied about centuries earlier by the prophet Daniel, as God revealed it to him in a night vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. We read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him, meaning the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That Jesus is the one to whom all authority is given is a truth that is consistently referenced, repeated, and spoken of throughout the scriptures. Jesus himself had professed it numerous times already. For example, in Matthew 11, verse 27, Jesus said this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In John's Gospel, we hear Jesus saying, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And again, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. In His high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, verses 1 and 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And the truth of Christ's authority over all things is a key and a central aspect to the apostolic preaching. As Peter, for example, while he was preaching at Pentecost, said this in Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord, meaning sovereign ruler, and Christ. That he is Lord means he possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. The Apostle Paul also repeatedly declared the truth of Christ's all-encompassing authority in his letters. In his letter to the Romans, for example, he wrote that Christ is Lord both of the dead and the living. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote that Jesus must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet and that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
In his letter to the Ephesians, he ascribes glory to God for raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And in his letter to the Philippians, are you seeing the pattern here? The authority of Jesus is a foundation for the confidence of the apostles. It's foundational for our confidence to go into the world and make disciples. Paul said in Philippians, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in Colossians 2.10, Paul tells us that Jesus is the head of all rule and all authority. It's not just Paul. Peter also writes that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, 1 Peter 3.22. Do you see it? It's a pretty consistent theme in Scripture that all authority in heaven and on earth has been delivered over to the Son by the Father. And this is the foundation for our confidence. This is the basis for our success in the accomplishment of the mission that Christ has set down for the church. We go. We go, and Jesus, possessing all authority, will see to it that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against the advance of the gospel in the world. We go armed with the knowledge that Jesus has been granted authority, authority and power over every single aspect of creation, over every single area of our lives. It is under the authority of Christ whether you are sick or healthy as you go, whether you are rich or poor as you go, whether you are respected or maligned as you go, even if you live or you die. If you are imprisoned or you are free, that's under the authority of Jesus. If you are employed or not, that's under the authority of Jesus. If you are married or single, that's under the authority of Jesus. In every instance, tell people about Christ because all authority belongs to him. Jesus was authoritative over the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul at times had thorn in his flesh that he pleaded with the Lord to get rid of. And Jesus said, no, my, my, grace is made, my power is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. So in his sickness, God was authoritative. And at other times, God was authoritative when snakes would jump up and bite Paul in the hand and he would just shake them off and go on his way. God was a, Jesus is authoritative over all of those things. He's authoritative over you as you go out into the world as well. Jesus holds creation together by the word of his power. Jesus sends rain or he withholds it. He sends winds or he withholds them. He sends sunlight or he withholds it along with everything else. So you, disciple, believer in Christ, take a second right now. Consider and meditate on this wonderful truth. Contemplate the reality of King Jesus seated on his throne, ruling over everyone, over everything, everywhere. 
He rules and reigns over the very demonic realm that hopes to halt or hinder you from going into the world and making disciples. And so while Satan does indeed roam to and fro seeking someone to devour and someone to deceive, he can only do what Christ permits because all authority belongs to Jesus. Satan is on a leash and he can only do what he is permitted to do. And while Satan rages against Jesus in this world and hopes to somehow, some way block or hinder the outworking of Christ's will, listen to this. Go into the world with this knowledge. Everything Satan does always, only, unwittingly, against his own will, seeks to advance the cause of Christ. That's how authoritative Jesus is. What Satan intends for evil, Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, ultimately turns and transforms all of it for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The authority of Jesus extends not only over Satan and the demonic realm, but listen, it also extends to and over the governments and the leaders in the world as well. Don't fear them. Don't be angry and rage against them. Though they conspire to throw off the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2 tells us that as they do, he sits in the heavens and he laughs. And one day we'll break them all with a rod of iron, Psalm 2.9. So as you go in the name of Jesus Christ, recognizing that he has authority over all the governments and all the leaders in the world, don't fixate on them, but go knowing that Jesus possesses all authority. And though the governments rage, though they may charge you, though they may imprison you, that's all passed through the hands of King Jesus. And if you find yourself in the courts tell of Jesus. If you find yourself in the prisons, tell of Jesus. There is just no way that they can stop you from preaching Jesus. What can man do to me? Really? What can man do to you? The worst thing they could do is end your life. But all that means is, now you're with Jesus. Amen. Well done, good and faithful servant. As we read four times in Daniel's cha Daniel chapters 4 and 5, the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. King Jesus rules and reigns over the kings of the world, and as Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns it wherever he will. Notice it. People tend to bristle at this truth a little bit. But the, the heart of the king is turned by the Lord wherever he, meaning King Jesus, wills it to go. Because Christ, meaning, because Christ is authoritative over all things, that means he is also authoritative over all the hearts of all mankind. He rules over the church. He rules over the unbelieving world. He rules over the scoffers and those who seek to humiliate you. He rules over the raging nations. He rules over death. He rules over life. He rules over the heavenly realms. He rules over the earthly realms. When the text says, all authority has been given to him, guess what the text means? It means all authority is given to him. And his rule is unchallengeable. Again, as we read in the Proverbs, Solomon said, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. And Jesus is Lord. He is the king to whom all authority has been delivered. His dominion and his rule are universal. They extend over all of creation. 
And it is with this knowledge, fellow believer, with this as your foundation, believer, it is against this backdrop, my fellow disciples, that we go out and make disciples of all nations. Because there is no way we can fail. Did you hear me? There is no way that we can fail. When Jesus is the one to whom all authority is given, and He is our support, and He is our foundation, and He is our power, there is no way we can fail. And He has committed to us His commission. He has blessed us. It's time to change the way we see it. He has blessed us with the task of global disciple-making in the knowledge of his absolute, total, majestic, unchallengeable authority, and he has guaranteed to us the success of the commission that he has given us. And this reality, once again, it forms the basis for our courage and our confidence to actually go into the world and make disciples. Knowing that because our Lord rules over all, and that nothing can happen to you or to me that Jesus himself doesn't permit or decree or that has not, already ha- has not already gone through the hands of Jesus and will not ultimately and will ultimately contribute to our good? How can we not? So the first aspect of the Great Commission given to the disciples of Jesus throughout the millennia is the recognition of Jesus Christ's all-encompassing authority. As he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And knowing this, he now moves on to the second component of his words to the disciples, his commission to the disciples to make more disciples. You read this in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, there's three things, there's three sub-points in this, right, that we are going to work through here. Now, notice in verse 19 the therefore. There is a therefore after the word go, which means that it's the commission of Jesus is connected to unto connected to the authority of Jesus. It means on the basis of the authority committed to Jesus that you, his disciples, go joyfully in his name. And listen, the task will seem to us overwhelmingly difficult as we go and the world mocks us, as we go and governments persecute and imprison us, as we go and laws are passed to hinder us, and obstacles are thrown in your path to slow you down, and efforts are made to clamp down on the message of the gospel, and those come from everywhere. Even, even, YouTube even might charge you with violations of their community standards. I just had that, we had that happen to us recently. Amen. If YouTube doesn't like us, we're doing something right. Whatever it is, who cares? Jesus is king, and Jesus is with us. So whatever the consequences we face as we obey the commission, so be it. It's all passed through the hands of our king. And there is no place in creation where the opportunity and the blessing to proclaim Christ is not necessary. I love the the Apostle Paul. 
He is, in my estimation, one of the most heroic men who's ever lived. And when you read the New Testament and you look at the life of this man, so dedicated to Jesus, so confident in Jesus, you see that wherever he found himself, he could be in the Areopagus, the cultural center in the, in the, in the, in the ancient unsaved Roman world. He could be in prison. He could be in the synagogue. He could be speaking to Jews. He could be speaking to Gentiles. He could be speaking to Roman governors, or he could be speaking to Jewish authorities. Whoever, wherever, whenever, he was relentless in his witness for Jesus. And so too, us, wherever we find ourselves, let's be like the Apostle Paul, relentless in our witness for Jesus. So you see, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, the word go here is not an imperative, meaning it's not the command. The command is not to go as in find a spot on a map and get yourself there to preach the gospel. It's not what is being said here. The imperative, the command is actually make disciples. That's the overarching command. The idea of going here would be better captured by saying something along the lines of as you are going or as you live your life in the world, wherever you find yourself, make disciples. If you find yourself at work, make disciples. At the store, make disciples. At dinner, make disciples. Among the nations, make disciples. If you find yourself in court, make disciples. In prison, make disciples. In church, make disciples. On an airplane, make disciples. Meaning, everywhere you are, always be about the labor of trying to make disciples. Tell people about Jesus Christ and the offer of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Him. The going here is not limited to some special subgroup of men or women who sense the call to cross-cultural international mission work. They are wonderful, but this command is not limited to them, nor is it limited or directed at pastors, evangelists, and missionaries only. This command is for each and every disciple of Jesus Christ from that day to this and from this day to the end. Everyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus, whatever you are, whoever you are, wherever you are, preach and proclaim the gospel. The, gospel the, the mission field does not need to be halfway across the world. It might very well be in the cubicle next to you at work. As you go, as you live, make disciples of all nations. And listen to me. As you do this, Nobody wants you to do this, right? The world does not want you to be faithful to this command. And so as you go, you're going to get all sorts of responses designed to put you on the back foot, right? And I hear it a lot. I don't want to be pushy with the gospel. You know, you might get people saying to you, don't push your religion on me. Or you might, get, you might think to yourself, well, I don't want to offend people with the word of Jesus, and somebody might even say to you, don't, it's offensive to me, let's not talk about religion. Listen, when we're at the dinner table, we don't talk about religion and we don't talk about politics and we don't talk about any of these, these like sensitive issues. And you know what? You are going to be tempted to listen to them. You're going to be tempted to say, yeah, I, you know what, I don't want to be a pushy with the gospel. I don't want to actually like offend people with the gospel. But listen, to let the world, to let the culture, to let our families, to let our friends, to let our co-workers offense at the gospel, rather than Christ's command to declare the gospel, 
dictate our gospel witness or lack thereof is wrong. The world does not dictate our going and making disciples. Wherever we go, preach, preach, preach. Wherever we are, witness, witness, witness. The world does not determine the when and the where and the how of the Great Commission. Jesus does. He said, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name to everyone as you go. You don't want to seem pushy? Forget that. Be pushy. You don't want to seem offensive? Forget that. Be offensive if it means trying to save souls. Don't let the world and the culture that we live in keep you from the task that Jesus has commanded us to do. To make disciples means that you and I must tell the nations. We must tell the people in those nations. We must tell people all over the world the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus continues and tells us that when they believe, the next step is that we baptize them. You see that, right? And then the step after that is we continue to instruct each other to observe the commands of Jesus. Now, just as an aside, the fact that Jesus calls on us to make disciples of all nations ought to say something, because here's another cultural thing that I've been hearing over the last little while. It ought to tell us everything we need to know about his assessment of the religions in the world. We see, we live in a society and we live in a culture that seems to value and to speak positively about religious diversity. We live in a society and a culture and there are many who would profess the name of Jesus who value and appreciate things like interfaith dialogue. But the disciple of Jesus cares nothing for these things. Our desire is actually to free people from their enslavement to the false gods that dominate the nations, from the idols that damn the souls of the people who are enslaved to them. We are committed to seeing people lay down their idolatries, to get rid of their phony gods as they turn to the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as countercultural as this might sound, the idolatry of the world, religious diversity, and plurality is not something the Christian celebrates. And as we work our way through Deuteronomy over the next little while, you will see that clearly. Religious diversity and plurality in our culture is an obstacle that Christians, great commissioned Christians, seek to shatter and to overcome in the name of Jesus Christ. And we do this by going into all the world to make disciples for Jesus. And when Jesus tells us to make disciples, some of you might be saying, well, what does that mean? What is a disciple? The good thing about Jesus is that he tells us what a disciple is in Scripture. He always tells us the things we need to know. So if you go back, for example, to John's Gospel in chapter 8, you will see that there was a time when many Jews believed, they used the word believed in Jesus, and they believed because they saw his miracles and they listened to his words, but the belief wasn't actually a saving belief. There is a type of belief 
that is really not true discipleship. So the question then is, how does one know if they are truly a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, listen to John 8, chapter 31, or chapter 8, verse 31 to 32. Hear the word of Jesus. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Hear that? If you abide in Christ's word, you are truly a disciple of Jesus. Meaning, if you don't abide in his word, then you aren't. Which is why in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us what is involved in our disciple-making mission. First things first, the unwritten assumption is we preach the repentance and forgiveness in Christ's name. Making disciples, again, involves the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of our crucified and risen Lord, upon whom our iniquities have been laid and in whom they are dealt with and forgiven for everyone who believes in the name of Jesus. And when a disciple is made... We abide in God's word by obeying his command in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I might ruffle some feathers speaking here about this subject, but the word of God is clear. A few things to note. The word for baptism here means, quite literally, to be dipped, plunged, or immersed in water. To be dipped, plunged, or immersed in water. So the mode of baptism is clearly spelled out by the choice of words used in the text. So clearly, baptism is the dipping, the plunging, or the immersing of a disciple in water. And those who are immersed are baptized in the name. Note, it, note that it's in the singular here. This is a, there is one name, one God, who exists in three persons. You see it, right? It is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To baptize believers is a clear directive of the Lord to the church and is also a clear directive to disciples to obey his command to be baptized. In our day, we kind of have this, this odd relationship with baptism, don't we? There are some organizations who call themselves churches, like, for example, the Salvation Army, who teach that baptism is not essential to the Christian life and therefore they don't practice baptism. The Reformers, the Calvins, the Luthers, the Zwinglies, they were clear, and I agree with them, that any assembly that would rightly call itself a church must have three things. Must have the proper preaching and teaching of God's word, must practice proper church discipline, and must observe the, the ordinances commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism and communion. And along with the Salvation Army not baptizing, there are many so-called disciples who speak about baptism as though it were some sort of unnecessary deed, some sort of optional add-on to the Christian life, some optional add-on to, the, the, to being a disciple that we will undergo when we get around to it or we overcome our fear of speaking in front of people. Some put off baptism because they, in error, think that baptism is only for mature believers the ones that have all their stuff put together. But baptism is a command for all who turn to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Baptism is actually, according to the Great Commission, the initial step of obedience to Christ upon trusting Him for salvation. And the New Testament witness to this is unmistakable. Believers get baptized soon after believing. To put it plainly, 
According to Jesus and the apostles, disciples get baptized. And if they don't, they are violating and disobeying a direct command of the Lord. Listen here. The notion or the concept of a long-term unbaptized disciple is foreign to the New Testament. There is no category, if this is you, for you in the New Testament. And it ought to be foreign to us also if we are Bible-believing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while the act of baptism doesn't save a person, baptism is not optional. It, you must, if you say you believe in Jesus Christ and have not yet been, be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, when the Apostle Peter, preaching at Pentecost, was asked by the people to whom he was preaching, they said, when they heard the message, when their hearts were cut to the core by the message of the gospel, they asked him, they cried out to him, well, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, do you see in that text how closely baptism and forgiveness of sins are tied or connected? Because Peter's assumption is, and ours still should be, that all believers, those whose sins have been forgiven by Jesus, are baptized. Those whose hearts have been renewed by Jesus are to automatically, upon believing, seek baptism. Acts 2.41 tells us that those who received the gospel were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Again, in Acts chapter 8, we've got the people of Samaria hearing the apostle Philip preach the good news to them. In Acts chapter 8, 12 to 13, we read, When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself, Simon was a magician who turned to Jesus, even he believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. You see the, the order in that text, right? It would seem that according to Acts 8, that Simon, before he could begin traveling with Philip, must be baptized. It would seem that a believer should be baptized before leading or going in any capacity in the church. Paul speaks about baptism as a sign of the death of our old self and our commitment to walking in newness of life and faith in Jesus. As he wrote in his letter to the Romans, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, if you think about this, when Paul and the apostles were preaching this necessity of baptism, they were doing so in a culture, in a society, in a world where being baptized outed you as a Christian. And to be outed as a Christian in the Roman Empire during these days was to put your life at risk. The same is true for many around the world today. To be baptized in countries like Iran or in China or in North Korea can oftentimes be a death sentence. And yet the disciples in those countries understand the call of Jesus Christ. If you believe, you will be baptized. It is a command given to all disciples by Jesus Christ. Now again, just as an aside, some might ask, someone in here might be asking or thinking to themselves, well, what about baptizing babies? 
Let me ruffle your feathers a bit. There is no clear New Testament record of infant baptism. The practice has arisen due to unwarranted leaps and improper assumptions about texts like Acts 16.33. Let me read it for you. It says, And he, the Philippian jailer, took them, meaning Paul and Silas, the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. That all his family was baptized has led some to assume that that meant babies were present in the household as well. But if you want to understand who is being baptized, you read the verses just prior to this Acts 16.33. You can clearly see the necessity of belief as a precondition for baptism. Listen to it. The jailer, as the jailer brought Paul and Silas out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Explanation, as in, Everyone in your household who believes will be saved. And they, Paul and Silas, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house, meaning to everyone who could understand and believe. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The all his family has already been mentioned twice as those to whom the gospel was preached and they believed. Again, in Acts 18, it is made clear belief precedes baptism. In Acts 18.8, we read, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Belief precedes baptism. And believers get baptized. So let me lay a hard truth on you. If you profess to love and serve Jesus Christ, if you profess to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but for some reason or other refuse to get baptized, you are disobeying the Lord Jesus Christ. You are disobeying a direct command of the Lord that you claim to love and serve and be a disciple of. And you are one that the New Testament does not recognize or have a category for. Because in the apostolic days, when someone believed, they were then baptized, it was automatic. This is the witness of the New Testament. You hear the gospel, you repent, you believe, you are baptized in water by immersion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is also no category in the New Testament for those who are baptized before they believe. As in baptized as an infant. It is an unscriptural practice with no precedent in Scripture. So, for everyone here, in here who believes, who has repented of sin, who has, for some reason, not obeyed the discipleship call of Jesus to be baptized by being plunged as a believer in front of your church community, you are disobeying this clear command. You are disobeying Christ's call to an indispensable component of discipleship, that you must be baptized according to his word in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that was number two. So as we make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there is a third command of Christ that, that is committed to making disciples here in verse 20. So you go, you make disciples, you baptize them, and in verse 20, you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. A couple of things here. 
So one of our tasks as Great Commission Christians is to teach each other to observe everything that Christ has commanded. That is part of discipleship too, obedience to Jesus, which means a couple of things. It means that you ought to know what it is that Jesus commands. And the words and the commands of Jesus are set down for us in the pages of Scripture. And when I say Scripture, I mean all Scripture, because in essence, Jesus wrote it all. There we are told what Christ expects of his disciples. There we are, the gospel is revealed to us. There we are told who Jesus is, what he is like, and what he wants from us. This is the reason we are to live in this book, to study it, to apply it, to obey it, and not just parts of it, but all of it. And knowing ourselves that all that Christ has commanded, we teach others to observe those same commands. We work with one another to encourage and exhort and edify one another to observe the commands of Jesus for their joy and for their happiness in the Lord. We instruct other disciples and labor ourselves to keep and to conform our lives to the pattern given to us by Jesus Christ himself. And how do we reveal? This is how we reveal our love for Jesus, by following and observing his commands. Jesus has made this clear numerous times. In John's gospel, we read, for example, Jesus saying in 1415, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And again, in 1421, whoever has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And in 1423, see, in short order, Jesus says this three times, and when you see that in Scripture, three times, it's something to take very seriously. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And the Apostle John wrote himself in his first epistle, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Making disciples means that we all help each other grow up in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus make it their aim in all things to obey the commands of Jesus. Now listen, enough, enough with half-hearted devotion, enough with trying to love the world and to gain the affection of the world and to be liked by the world all the while trying to add a little bit of Jesus to our lives so we feel good here and we have some sort of like nice feeling about our spiritual lives too. Enough with trying to love the world and to love our sins. Enough of trying to dis justify our disobedience to Christ's will, Christ's will in order to do and say and live how we want to live here in the world all the while fooling ourselves into thinking we're disciples. Let us... Again, as we work through De Deuteronomy, you will see the Lord consistently say it. You must love me with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Let us, with wholehearted devotion and dedication in the power of the Holy Spirit, as those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, actually seek and endeavor to live as he commands us to live. To be a disciple or not. The question goes out to you, the same question that Elijah asked the Israelites who were worshiping Baal instead of Yahweh during the reign of King Ahab when he looked at them and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Meaning, either love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength 
or love the world and make yourself an enemy of God. Love the Lord and prove that you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ or love the world and be an enemy of God. So you see, disciples both learn the commands of Christ and as they observe the commands of Christ themselves, they teach other disciples to do the same. And as we go, fourthly, or third, so we did the point one, the encompassing authority of Christ, point two, the command of Jesus' disciples to make disciples, and then we did three subpoints there, and now we come back to the third of the main points, right? In verse 20, as he concludes these words with a promise, the promise of his presence with us to the end of the age. The promise is for each and every disciple. If you're a disciple this morning, then know this, that in all times and in all seasons of your life, as you go in obedience to the commission of Jesus, Jesus is with you always. When you can't answer the questions that scoffers pose to you, Jesus is there. He is with you. When you are strong or you are weak, Jesus is there and he is with you. When you are sick or healthy, Jesus is there. He's there on the day of your birth, on the day of your death, and every day in between. And he will be with every single one of his disciples to the very end of the age. So you see how he sandwiches the commission in between these two spectacular realities, that he has all authority and that he will be with us till the end of the age. And because of these two promises and realities, then we go and we make disciples. As you go, know this. Again, the authority of Jesus over everyone, over everything, everywhere is an unchallengeable and an unassailable authority. He is Lord and all authority has been given to him. And he will... He will gather in all his elect saints throughout the ages as he commissions us in every generation to go and make disciples. So if I could conclude by reminding us of the foundation here. Our commission, our task in the world is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything Jesus has commanded, and we do this, fellow saints, comforted, supported, and buttressed by the glorious truth that Jesus is with us, with each and every one of us, at all times, as we go, and he will be with us, every single one of us, always, to the very end of the age. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the commission We thank you for the marching orders. We thank you for their clarity. We thank you for the promises that you give of your all-encompassing authority and your presence with us. And Lord, as we live in a world that is hostile to the idea of people preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus Christ as the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way by which we come to the Father, the only way by which anyone can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. We ask that you would give us courage, you would give us hope, you would give us confidence, you would give us joy, 
and you would help us to transform our view of the commission from a duty that we do begrudgingly to a joyful opportunity to love you and to serve you and to see more souls enter into the kingdom of God. What a blessing that you have given us. May we honor you by doing your will well in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.